0: welcome in to another episode of espn's nbl podcast we are two games down in the championship series and one away from either sydney or new zealand having an opportunity to close out the series and win the title on sunday afternoon in auckland my name's kane Pittman, and alongside me not alongside me in sydney still just soaking up the sydney kings atmosphere at the moment and seeing whether this is a team that can get the job done is the number one newsbreaker in the business colleague, friend, Olga Nulwich.
1: Oh, friend. That's so <laughs> lovely. No, no, it's good to be back. Um, we, got, we have two completely different games to sort of chop down and got some news to go over, so I'm excited.
0: Yep, we'll go through the first two games in this series, look ahead to game three. We'll talk about Xavier Cook's uh, heading to the Washington Wizards, which was exciting and fun news for Australian basketball fans earlier this week. And as you pointed to, you've been... Dropping all sorts of stuff, contract stuff, guys signing overseas, Chris Golding. Uh, just heading over to Paris, which just sounds absolutely lovely over the next few months. Let am go
1: to Paris. Take me, me to Paris with you.
0: Uh, I've never been to Europe at all. So we want to get into all of that, but uh, the main focus will obviously be the NBL Grand Final. Now, I called you friend. I was buttoning you up a little bit here, Olks, because uh, we need to get down to some notekeeping, some housekeeping to start this podcast. Last week, we ended the pod by discussing the grand final MVP and just perhaps being a little bit curious about how the voting was going to go down, who was going to be the voting, uh, who was going to be doing the voting. And you said you had no idea. And I I do call you a friend, but now I have to sit here and and feel like you were lying right to my face.
1: Um, Firstly, we're going to, we're going to go back to you having not ever been to Europe. We're going (laughs) to, I'm not leaving that. We're going to hit that a bit later. Um, I promise I had no idea. Mm. Uh, We, at the time we were talking about it, we I wasn't really sure uh, how the voting worked. I just I had forgotten from previous seasons. I wasn't sure who would vote. Um, and then it was I think it might have been the next day. Um, I was asked to be put on the the selection committee, um, and I accepted. And and now I'm I'm part of it. I'll also correct from last week where we said uh, <laughs> it would be cool if there was an Andre Igadala type uh grand final mvp or championship series mvp and we said that we don't think there had been there was one back in 2016 it was damien martin so he mm. kind of filled that role um so yeah just just correcting some things from from last week's podcast but yeah i'm on i'm on the voting committee for this for this championship series mvp i promise i didn't know at the time
0: uh, this is like PTI. You start the show just to rip off the corrections or little errors you've made along the way. There is nothing <laughs> like a bit of old-fashioned accountability. Now, uh, I want to continue this conversation first, though, because it wasn't just the fact that you're doing the voting for this grand final series, but don't don't, don't, don't you dare start shrugging your shoulders and taking in deep breaths and giving me that look, Olgen. I saw the description. I know
1: where you're going.
0: And it said, award-winning journalist. So the question I have for you is, did yeah. you demand that they put in award-winning journalist, or is this the NBL propping up a, an old award? Because I believe it was the NBL who gave you this award.
1: It was the NBL Most Outstanding Media Award, <laughs> which was retired after oh. I won it. So I, I won that award, and now I'm the, the reigning president uh, of that award. So, and look, I'll take it. It, it is a bit weird that award-winning, award-winning journalist, they gave me the award. Like that's, like they did it. So look, I'll take it. I promise I didn't I promise I gave them nothing. I let them I let them do what they wanted. And and so big shout out to them for for pumping me up because um actually no, not big shout out to them, because that wasn't that was a weird morning. That was people, people people legitimately thought that I that I gave their suggestion in. There <laughs> was some people who said it in jest and I appreciate those people. But some people thought like, oh did he really just did he did he give them this description? I promise I didn't as much as I appreciate it. Oh, you're the
0: best in the business. And and, and i got no problem with them saying award-winning journalists. One last thing that I need to ask you, though, on, this in this investigation. <laughs> this, this is the final question for this investigation. And then I promise you we are diving deep, going deep into red. this series. Going you You're looking a little bit embarrassed, which makes me feel pretty happy about the way this podcast is going <laughs> so far. It was suggested to me, and I'm not going to name, and you know all about this. you, you do not You don't name your sources. But it was suggested to me, that as you pointed out, you were the last person to win this award. And then you decided to to leave us in the media and go on to uh, different ventures and live the NBA life and private jets and all those types of things. Did you demand that the NBL retire this award because you said that there is no one else that can live up to the standard I set around the NBL?
1: How do I answer this question? How do I possibly answer this question? <laughs> I took the award. I took it on the private jet from from the NBA draft to Oklahoma City and I left it in Oklahoma City. And now they can't get it back. It's too expensive to ship it back here. So I'm just the final winner of the award. It is funny that they've never given that award out since I won it. so I just I have it somewhere.' It's, it's also a weird it's a cool looking award, but it's a bit weird and a lot of players have a similar one where it's like your face like superimposed in a really thick bit oh of glass
0: it's terrifying and
1: it's it's absurd and so i i have it like on a mantle but it's just imagine like a 3d face just superimposed in a giant like block of glass um it's kind of it's kind of scary um and they use like my headshot for it too and it's like yeah, it's my headshot that's like for work and for formal things that's Let's talk about, can we talk about basketball or something?
0: Yeah, I don't want to talk about your superimposed head on trophies anymore. <laughs> and I take full responsibility because I took us down that path. All right, let's get to this championship series. So it is locked at one apiece. And uh, again, as we keep ourselves accountable here, I had the Kings in five, you had the Kings in four. So we can break it all down and talk about this more you know, broadly. I don't think we need to go blow by blow of what happened in all these games, because I think the storylines have already moved on and now it shifts to game three and what the changes are going to be. But let me just ask you this question to start when you come out of halftime and it is just an absolute grind. It's 30 to 34. The Kings are leading. We know they're down 1-0. zero. They're on the road. Derek Walton's been ruled out of the game. Xavier cooks doesn't come out after halftime on the floor. Uh, how are you feeling about your Kings in four prediction at that point in time? Because it felt like me sitting on the couch here in Melbourne, that the Kings are just going to have to find a way to scrap this out. And the tide is absolutely against them right now.
1: Well, it was the nature of the game. It was the pace of that game. It was the context of those two guys being injured. You would think this is built for a New Zealand win. This is this is the type of game they want to be in. The sort of the gritty game, low scoring. That's what they want to do. Sydney Kings want to get up and down with all of their healthy bodies. They were not getting up and down and they didn't have healthy bodies. Um, and so it was... It was scary. That's that's what makes this win not just so so much more impressive for the Sydney Kings, but just so just crazy in the grand scheme of like this series. Um, and just big credit to firstly Chase Buford for sticking to his guns and um, you know, leaning into his philosophies that he he was gonna, he's going to keep the entire series. Like he will play the coverage he wants to play, and and he will live with the results. Um, and then credit to the the guys who stepped up for the Sydney Kings, from Justin Simon, obviously, who wasn't just the six deals, but it was just the the pressure, the pickup points on McDowell White um, that just absolutely changed that game um and it and it just took New Zealand out of everything. And then, you know, DJ. Vasilievich had, you know his breakout game, which we knew was going to come at some point, but it came quite noi, was incredible off the bench. Geordie hunted defensively, was unreal. You know, all these guys stepped up. Angus Glover made big shots. Sean Bruce had some, I think, uncharacteristic turnovers, but you know, he so he steadied the ship for them. They needed someone to step up as the point guard, and he didn't. So this this five-day break is a godsend for this team, I think. Cause it doesn't seem like the injuries to, to Walton Jr. and Cooks are too significant. It just seemed like they something that they needed time to get over. Um, but yeah, I, I I did not... expect. I, I When halftime hit, when we went into the second half, I did not think that we would be talking today with this series tied up at one all. I thought it, it would be 2-0 two, New Zealand and Sydney King's backs against the wall.
0: Uh, it was gutsy they showed a significant amount of determination to be able to overcome the fact that they lost to those two guys mid-game. I mean, we spent a lot of time in the last series talking about the Cairns Taipans and the way they were able to overcome significant loss. And now we've seen... Uh, The Kings do that uh, with those two guys out. And yeah, you know, we talk about the schedule and it's weird and you get all this momentum and part of me as, yes, we work in it, but also just a fan of the game. I want the momentum to keep rolling and I'm ready for game three already, but there's no question that the Sydney Kings would probably like the fact that they get five days off before game three. The rotations are interesting because clearly there was some other stuff going on. Xavier Cooks has been banged up for a big part of the back half of this season with various different injuries. He did the the knee stuff is, is interesting because when I watched the game back again, it was actually very awkward on the first play of game one, where he was sort of bumped off balance by Jarrell Bradley. He did draw the foul, but it was almost like a hyperextension type action. And it was very awkward.
1: He hyperextended his knee and then got some corkies beyond that on the same knee. So it was just one after the other.
0: Yeah, and it's to watch it back again was, was just was uncomfortable because it always is when you see those hyperextension-type actions with the knee. But he tried to uh, push through that, and maybe that's why the rotations were the way they were. And I know that coaches can get a little bit prickly when people question their rotations or, or at least just uh, ask the idea of the minutes limits. And the Kings have certainly been a team that has played deep. You think about some of the games they've won in the fourth quarter throughout the season. Quattanoi hitting game-winners, sean bruce hitting game winners and i think we saw that that it can pay off in the biggest moments when you have unexpected injuries come to key players and you mentioned some of the individual performances but it's also the minutes you get 31 minutes from quatnoy glovers playing 15 plus geordie hunters into the 20s in this game Uh, bruce plays just a tick under 30 minutes so they had to lean on the guys and yeah, they they've got experience. They've been around the system for a long time. There's no problems in them being able to run the stuff Chase Buford wants to play. But if you want to ask why during the regular season it's beneficial to play all these guys, including in the fourth quarter, I mean we saw it on the biggest stage in the biggest moment.
1: And big shout out to Quatnoy, who, you know, when we when I watched him play that game, he kind of he looked like MBL One North Quatnoi. Um, he was bodying up Jarrell Brantley which is tough for the elite players in this league to do let alone you know someone who comes off the bench but he was he had a ton of confidence getting on the rim using his body just trusting in his you know strength and athleticism and he dropped what 20 21 points that was really impressive and then also to Jalen Galloway who um, and you know when when you talk about Chase Buford going deep into his bench during the regular season. You know, I don't know if anyone averaged over 30 minutes a game, um, but Jalen Galloway is someone who got a good amount of minutes. And when Justin Simon went to the bench, you had Jalen Galloway on the primary ball handler doing the same sort of thing, playing really high up. The pickup points were really high and he was just being a nuisance. He was, he was super long and athletic, just getting his hands on on a bunch of these loose balls. And that created a lot of problems for New Zealand. So credit to those dudes for stepping up and sort of taking the, the load that, you know, the either injured or, you know, Justin Simon would have been fatigued after, you know, the work rate that he put in, you know, these guys stepped up and there's the difference between, for example, Sydney and Cairns, you know, Cairns played a really short rotation during the season because, you know, they, they felt they could. And then it sort of caught up to them when injuries hit, fatigue hit, and they couldn't go too deep into their bench. Whereas Sydney could go completely, could, could go completely into their bench. And it it really didn't affect them too much. There, there was times in the fourth where maybe they struggled to score. Maybe they struggled to get into their stuff um, and fatigue would have played a role there too. But, you know, those guys look like they belong.
0: Yeah. If you look at the New Zealand breakers minutes for this game, uh, repair only plays the eight minutes. And then you've, you've got big minutes from Leafa and Barry Brown, which we've come to expect, but everyone else is in the single digits there. So they essentially played, Six guys, twenty-five plus minutes, and everyone else not not all that much. And we've seen a little bit of that through the season. And I'm not saying that's wrong, by the way. It's just the situation that's played out, and probably I think the the defensive trust that Modi Mayor has in guys and who he wants out on the floor. So yeah, they're doing it a little bit different at the moment. Each of these teams at the moment, the health stuff has gone against the Kings, but we'll see how it looks over the next few games. The idea of adjustments is always fascinating to me, and there was definitely a a stage where I used to like want to have my comments on the game or what I think I'm seeing and all this kind of stuff. And over the last few years in particular, I've stepped away from that and realized that I'm not a coach. I don't need to be breaking (laughs) this game down in real time. Let's step back. Let's listen to what everyone has to say. Let's watch the game again a second time and then see uh, what comes of that. But I remember talking to you on Sunday night. Well, I should remember it was only two days ago. And I asked you about the idea of, when there is a game one and the Kings lost and they were the the favorites to win that game. Sure. It was on their home floor, but there is always a, a really, really big rush for people to try and identify what the adjustments need to be and what needs to change and why the Sydney Kings are now in trouble because they lost one game. And I think it's always fascinating for me at least to see whether there is any panic or there is trust in what you've done over the course of the entire regular season they got you to have a top three defense and got you to have the best record in the NBL. And I think as you go back and you watch these games again and you, and you compare the difference between game one and game two, despite the personnel changing a little bit for Sydney, I think that they did a decent job of, of stepping back and saying, okay, what actually went wrong in game one? Can we tweak things minimally? But ultimately, that's ensure that everyone is not panicking and believes that what we've done throughout the whole season will eventually come to the forefront.
1: Yeah, and so I I agree. This is why I don't tweet during games um, or even even try to make, you know, grand conclusions during games or even directly, like, immediately after a game. I just don't see, the, there's no value in it, right? Um, especially based on one game. You know, a, a singular, a, a game one is a singularity for a reason, right? You might have a hot, so, for example, New Zealand had a pretty good shooting night. Yes, they are a good spot-up team, but they they shot particularly well. Um McDowell White and Barry Brown Jr. made tough shots, uh, especially in that in-between area. And so, if you are Chase Buford and you are the Sydney Kings, that's something that that's what you want them to do. You know, you, they're getting they're largely getting the shots that you want them to get. And and if they you know play above the percentages in one game, then it, it, I don't think it makes too much sense to to self correct to the extent that a lot of people were calling for just because the team shot over the, what the expectation was. Um, and so, yeah, the, the calls for, you know, get out of that drops coverage. No, you can just execute that drops coverage a little bit better, which is, I think what they did. I think they just, and it sounds almost too simplistic, but they just worked harder. They, they sort of, they chased over screens a bit better. Um, you know, the the pickup points were a bit higher and and it's just those slight little adjustments to what you, you're sort of leaning into as your coverage is is completely fine um and and i think that works both ways um overreacting to one game or even two games probably doesn't make too much sense unless there's an obvious like glaring mismatch somewhere um i, I what did what did you make of the sort of discourse around you know mcdowell white for example has you know what what was it 29 and 9 in that first game and Obviously, Justin Simon did an incredible job on him in Game Two, but after that first game, people were calling for you know they can't be in that drop, be in that drops coverage. You know, w- you know what what are they doing? You know, what did you make of the discourse that followed that first game, and then obviously that remain that sort of that dial down a little bit after Game Two.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because as you know, i spent a number of years in Milwaukee watching that team, and they play drop coverage as well as any team in the nba and yet it gets criticized constantly and you can't play this and it generally happens because if you're playing drop coverage there are games where you might lose because a a team's going to hit a bunch of threes above the break because maybe the team is overhelping a little bit which can happen you can just get guys that are collapsing into a into the paint a little bit too much because when the ball handler is able to get downhill he has a runway the defenders maybe want to help a little bit, so they will step in and it can can create open threes. The other thing is sometimes guys just get hot in that floater range, which remains a very very difficult shot to finish. So it's not uncommon. And my theory with why drop coverage is so easily criticized is because it's very easy to see. Like if you're watching a game, if you don't have to be a basketball guru to say, okay, they're playing some variation of the drop coverage. But but what I would say is that not all drop coverages are built the same and you can still play drop coverage, but just change a little bit. And maybe it's Justin Simon picking up Will McDowell white at half court instead of a few uh, steps beyond half court. Maybe he is fighting over the screen a little bit harder and presenting that that rear contest, which puts some doubt into the mind of the ball handler. And then maybe it's just the teammates on the Sydney Kings, trusting the defense a little bit more and staying Home on the three-point shooters. So I if you can execute it correctly, I I think if you've got a big like Tim Suarez that can stay in the paint, defend vertically, and you've got the help guy like Xavier Cooks. Now he wasn't there in game two. But in theory, I don't understand why the Kings would do anything differently. I think that the the defense constantly gets criticized when there is outlier games like this where a team might shoot better from that in-between range. And McDowell White was unbelievable. I think he made all the right decisions in game one, but I thought it was smart to just keep playing that way and play the percentages. And as you said, maybe it is Justin Simon having this crazy, insane defensive game. Maybe you stay at home a little bit more and just like little tweaks that this team has done so well all season. And I think it served them well.
1: Yeah, and it was... Also we saw in both games it wasn't just a drops coverage it was you know sometimes oh, they, they go yeah. sometimes they go under that screen sometimes they they drop into like a little zone they they were switching at one point in game 1 it's like they they're mixing it up just like every team does it just so happens that you know the primary defensive coverage that they have is like you said i think the one that's just like really easy to see and when it gets scored on it, it i don't know it feels it, does it feel more visceral is that the, is that the whole thing if if you get scored on with drops coverage um but i think just the the shots that they're trying to get new zealand to take are the ones that i think the kings will live with i think they'll play the percentages and you know statistically that's probably what's going to win them the title if they continue to play to the percentages yeah I don't know. if you i don't think i don't think this the kings out of any team in the league is one to bend to public pressure um they're probably the one that would put the most public pressure on uh if if something aggrieves them and we've known that over the past few years, but yeah, if, if people are calling for something for the Sydney Kings, I feel like they're the sort of they're the most stubborn franchise for, for good and bad.
0: And the shot profile did change for the breakers in game two as well. So on the season, the Kings, because they do play this coverage a lot, and this is what they're trying to do, and I've written about it a number of times, and people have spoken mm-hmm. about it, on the season, they were giving up 32 percent of opponent shots at the rim. In game one, that went up to 41%. So the breakers were getting there a little bit more often. Now, they weren't all that efficient, but it does tell you that perhaps they were getting a little bit deeper or at least absolutely trying to attack whether it was Tim Suarez or Xavier Cooks. And when I went back and watched the game, Abercrombie starts the game in game one with a really, really tough finish over Tim Suarez. McDowell White was hitting some of those difficult shots in between. So it would be interesting to know what the what the Kings said as they had very little time to adjust before game two or to look at the film and break down what they thought. But game two, that shot profile at the rim came back to 32% again. So 32% on the season, 41% in game one back to 32% in game two. So they were able to shut the gate a little bit in terms of the the volume of shots at the rim. And, and I thought the breakers got a little bit too three point happy. 49% of their shots came from three. That was down at 41% in game one. So they did let it fly a lot. I think some of them were good looks and we're not silly enough to sit here and say that sometimes make some shots. And and so if you're looking for an adjustment for the breakers, I I think that they would still feel relatively comfortable. We spoke about it before the series started. I mean, this is the uh, fifth ranked offense on the season. So it's not an absolute strong suit, but they've generally been a decent three-point shooting team. Sometimes you just got to
1: knock them down. Yeah. Um, you know, Isaiah Liafu is someone who came on and hit shots. It, it, I I get that maybe if, if Modi Mayor had a game two over again, he might have made an earlier substitution to start that game. Um, just because it was an absolute grind in that first quarter. I think that i were they scoreless in the first five minutes of, of yeah, of that game? Like it, it was, it was bad. Um, and then for Sydney, I, i I wonder how healthy those two are going to be, uh, Derek Walton Jr. and, and Xavier Cooks. It, it it seemed like so Derek Walton Jr. his that was a quad cramp, and I was told that it took a hell of a long time to unlock that. Like it was just a really bad cramp, and so he he was just not in a good space over the next few days, um, because it's just a cramp, and I say just a cramp because it's it's not you know like a a significant injury, um. I wonder if maybe just this stretch of time is good enough for him to get to as close to 100% as he could with Xavier Cooks, um, who we're going to talk about him getting that multi year deal. Um, You know, him being healthy is such a difference maker, obviously. You know, he was a shell of himself in the first few minutes of that game. You could tell he couldn't run from the tip. Um, And so I think this game obviously is going to help the Sydney Kings team in the long run because. Just think of the production and impact you got from someone like Jordy Hunter, who, not just offensively, where he was really good as you know that like slip, that slip man, that roll man, but in that second game, him as a, a someone who was defending the rim, playing straight up and and you know using his size and athleticism to to guard the rim, that was a game changing sort of adjustment from Chase Buford as far as putting him in the game, leaning on him instead of, instead of Tim Suarez who had you know some rough patches during that game, and so. Look, this is building up. I, my feel, and I want to get your take on this, my feel for the rest of this season, for the rest of this series, is that the home team wins every game. That's my guess. As much as I'd love to, for my Kings in four prediction to come true, um, so then I can flaunt that, <laughs> I, I imagine uh, every home team wins from here on out.
0: Yeah, I'm still feeling decent about the the this series going five games, which is interesting. I think I'm going to be at game 4, so from a selfish perspective, it would be fun to be there um if the series wraps up. But yeah, I think the idea of pressure is is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And Tom Abercrombie in the post game spoke about uh he whether he said that uh the breakers, I can't remember the exact word, whether he said they were nervous or Played like they're under pressure or something something along those lines. He was asked why he said that, and he said, I'm um, I'm not really sure. Now, maybe he said it and then thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. But, <laughs> you know, it is fascinating because the, the break has come in, nothing to lose. I caught up with Modi Mayall last week, and he said, I'm not nervous. You know, it's all gravy from here, which is a good attitude to have when it's 0-0. But when you go up 1-0 and then you're heading home with a chance to take a two-zip lead, it does shift a little bit. You're playing in front of your home fans, and all of a sudden you're in a position to really take the series by the scruff of the neck. So I think that is going to be fascinating because now it feels like it's tilted back the Kings way. But I know we spent a lot of this talking about the Sydney Kings, but for the breakers, yeah, I'm not panicking. I'm not panicking either. I wasn't too concerned about the game the other night. I do think just the offense is going to be challenging and against the way the Kings are going to defend them. they Yeah, as I said, they need to knock down some outside shots. They need to continue being aggressive and they probably when they can need to, need to play a little bit Faster, which I know is not necessarily what they've done all season, but they've done it a little bit in this game. And one last stat that I've got, if you want to identify how things change from game one to game two, fast break points, the Sydney Kings in game one, four. Yep. Four fast break points. And sometimes, you know, the, the fast break points are a little sketchy, but four points in game one and they got 17 in game two, and that's more like the Sydney Kings. That's how they're going to find themselves being able to score against this Breakers team, avoid getting into the half court. Now, some of that was just because Justin Simon ripped the ball out of their hands and threw it down <laughs> down the other end of the floor, but it did feel a little bit more Sydney like. So now, can the Breakers try and close that down, and just keep the Kings off the free throw line? That is going to be a big watch moving forward. But I'm not panicking if I'm either of these teams. I think they both like a lot of what they've done, um, but. I still am not wavering from my Kings in five prediction.
1: Yeah, look, both games have felt extremely tight. Um, It's the matchup we thought it'd be. Uh, The two teams, I think, match up really well against each other. I think, it's weird the length of both teams is affecting each other. Um, I think Kings had 20 turnovers in that game too, which that was was scary to watch because, you know, they had this big lead and they kept turning the ball over, turning the ball over. Um, That's the thing that's going to shoot you in the foot in a grand final game and, and you know, losing a game like this could be the difference between winning a title and not. And so those little things, you know, you, you saw, you spoke about those nerves, you saw those little bits of nerves from both teams, I think. Um, and I, I, I kind of want New Zealand to, to lean into their bench a little bit more. You know, I, I'd, I'd like to see them run some stuff for, for Cam Glidden. And even if it's not the shot for him, at least use his gravity to, to open stuff up. Same with Rob Lowe. You know, I think Rob Lowe this season has been a really good roller to the rim, you know, coming off those McDowell White on balls. And so I'd like to see them use, you know, those guys a little bit more. And then I do sort of want to see a, a, a steadier stream of Ryan Repair. Um, I don't, I don't, like maybe he's young and maybe there's just more trust in someone like Isaiah Leafa on both ends of the floor. Um, but I thought Repair was pretty good in, in that first game. Um, I think he's guarding decently well. Um, I, I think there are some sort of rookie errors that Murray Mayor is seeing um but i like the idea of of giving him an extended run because i just think his size and athleticism could make could make an impact in, in this series against a, a sydney team that has a bunch of size and athleticism
0: i and uh, not necessarily thinking that he will do it but only 14 minutes in game 1 8 minutes in game 2 for repair and i am just curious whether it's the the lack of trust in in the jump shot um for a team that desperately needs offense so i am a little curious to see whether they might just say this is game three. Let's just start Barry Brown and play him 30, 35 minutes. We'll see whether that's a change that they make uh, heading into game three. But I think there's some confidence stuff there with, with the young fella. You want to make sure he's still feeling good. So they might uh, opt against that. But we'll see game three Friday night. I uh, can't wait. It's going to be good. This series is uh, heading away. we thought it would. And I'm very excited to see how it pans out. I was also excited for Xavier Cooks yesterday and uh, the league. Yeah. MVP, I'll, I'm going to throw to you because you did speak to him yesterday, the Washington Wizards. Uh, he's going to be heading over and heading to the NBA. And look, Xavier Cooks is 27 right now, turns 28 in August, I believe it is. And I think he was well aware of of the idea that he was on the clock. And if it didn't yeah. happen this offseason, maybe it wouldn't happen at all.
1: Yeah, a, a 28 year old rookie is not something you usually see in the NBA. And so, yeah, they've I spoke to him yesterday before the Kings board of their flight back to Sydney. Um, and yeah, he was well aware of that. He was well, well aware that this might not happen as much as he's probably at the level to play in that league. It, it's just circumstances dictate that it's tough to bring in someone his age. And, and, and so, you know, credit to him and credit to the people around him for getting that deal done at a two year deal. So, you know, it extends into next season. So that's a question for the Sydney Kings. Um, but, yeah, Xavier Cooks's ride to the NBA has been super unique. He didn't get drafted out of Winthrop. Um He always had such a unique skill set. he He played the point a lot at Winthrop, and he was always super athletic, um, went to Germany, played there, went made that Boomers team, which was he was sort of a surprise selection in that that Boomers team back in two thousand and nineteen for the World Cup, got injured so he didn't get to play there. And so, you know, you can sort of get lost in the mix if, if you know you're playing overseas and then you get injured people can forget about you and he sort of leaned on the sydney kings and and that program and he's been there for four seasons first year he got there was sort of raw you know really good athlete but played next to andrew bogut just just wasn't that mvp level guy and you know you weren't really sure if he was actually going to get there but as the seasons progressed he did get there ultimately won grand final mvp regular season mvp and we'll see what happens this time but you know he's I think he has a skill set that can translate. The jump shot is the obvious question, but a lot of guys don't have jump shots. I I think Xavier Cooks is elite in enough areas that him being effective in the NBA is not out of the question in any way. And on a Wizards team, that I think could use a guy like him in in that position because I think they're pretty thin there.
0: Yeah, a couple of reasons I like it. And I would only be worried about the jump shot if he didn't have... A lot of other strings to his bow and he wasn't versatile defensively six eight so let's face it NBA teams these days absolutely cannot get enough of guys that are athletic and that size so it changes a little bit from the NBL and the NBL he sort of can guard one through five and the NBA it's you know probably threes and fours maybe can slide down to two so I'm fascinated to see there but you're right I watched the Wizards yesterday and uh, they, yeah, you know, Kyle Kuzma didn't play, but I, I think that, that it is a spot where he might get some opportunities to play down the stretch here. And the other thing is, the Wizards are still in the playing mix now. I don't know how desperate they are to get to the playing tournament, but there is a mm. chance that he will get uh, some pretty meaningful minutes and meaningful games down the stretch of the regular season. So, in that respect, it's a fun spot to go because sometimes, you know, if you go to a team that is just an absolute disaster, you might get some minutes. Um, to play, and that might be the objective, but it is kind of fun that he's going to a spot where some games might actually mean some stuff, so it will be fascinating. it's been a long time coming, and then it will project forward into the off season and and he'll clearly have a chance to to be around the team a little bit more and and hopefully really cash in and build on this next season because as we said it's a it's a big period for him.
1: yeah, those meaningful minutes is, is what I'm excited for. I remember a few years ago when cam Oliver signed with the Rockets. He finally yeah. signed a bunch of 10 days or signed for the remainder of a regular season. And they didn't feel that meaningful. Um, you know, on this team, you know, Xavier Cooks can come in and, and legitimately impact the team that's trying to win. And that's quite cool. Um, like when I think of his game, I, I think of sort of like a Draymond Green sort of type as far as a guy who can, you know, grab and go, push the ball, make passes out of, you know, from the top of the key out of the high post, that sort of thing. Um, and then you know just be an energy guy which i think he has the capacity to do he has the athleticism to be that in the nba and i think he can he's got a really good nose for the ball you know i I think he'll be able to find ways to contribute um because i think he's elite in so many areas that that i think it's conducive to, to being pretty good in the nba
0: all right quick news wrap up you got anything particularly interesting you want to throw our way olden
1: Oh, so I broke this morning and the team confirmed that Tyrell Harrison's returning to Brisbane Bullets. That's a two-year deal. Um, solid pickup for them. Injuries have sort of hindered him over the past two seasons. And so um, uh, it's sort of questionable, but I'm under the impression that Gorjok Gak will not be returning. And so Harrison is that backup center behind Aaron Baines. Um, all of the advanced metrics uh, in Harrison's favor, it's just staying on the floor. So if he can stay healthy, then I think he can be a, a really good impact role player for them. Um, and the other thing I was told this morning was Chris Golding is heading to Paris Basketball, uh, team coached by Will Weaver, former Sydney Kings head coach, former Boomers assistant coach, um, former Rockets assistant coach. So, um, he's obviously familiar with us in the Australian basketball ecosystem. So, that's a team that. Nearly got relegated last season. They're hovering around 500 now. They're in the Euro Cup playoffs, so Chris Golding can enter that. He's he would be an elite player at that level, and and he can sort of bolster their chances going going into those playoffs. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a cool pickup for them. We have got a lot of a lot of Australian and Kiwi players playing overseas right now in in Germany, in France, in Spain, in in every damn it, all across the world in Turkey. It's quite cool to see.
0: It is, and of course, for Australian basketball fans, you know, I certainly believe that Chris Golding is going to be in the mix and in the World Cup squad. That's, that's my belief. I think his role is still vitally important for the Boomers heading into the World Cup in August and September. So uh, you think back to last year and his off-season was kind of derailed. He had the calf stuff. It was a slow recovery there. So he didn't really play You know, up until mm-hmm. the season started. Uh, didn't do, wasn't involved in the Boomers stuff last off-season. So this is also... You know, keep that jump shot uh, in in good in good form, <laughs> in good order for the Boomers and the World Cup, and hopefully a medal uh, in August and September. All right, let's wrap this up. Oggs. Uh, game three, you'll be in the bu- in the building.
1: I will be. I'll be. I'll be right in there. Where are you going to be? Are you going to You coming?
0: I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh no. Uh, it's yeah. It's we'll, we'll see. Maybe game four. Working on game four. Uh, over over the ocean there. So we'll see.
1: Real quick, you've, you've never been to Europe? How old are you? 11?
0: Uh, well, I spent a lot of time in the US, OGS, as you know. So I have I. I know, but I was... Uh,
1: I ain't your age, and I've been to Europe plenty of times.
0: I know, but just to let our uh, listeners in on a little secret here, when you're as good at the job as OGS and you is, you just get a few more no, extra zeros no, on your contract, and so you can afford no, these Euro, chip, Euro I junkets. I don't do junkets,
1: okay? They don't send me on... <laughs> no one sends me on junkets i rarely get a junket <laughs> don't you dare I've, I've done the us a lot just like you have i've also done a lot of europe
0: because no, I'm, like, I'm an old. adult i'm an you, adult you are a very do, lucky man one day i can't wait to get over there it's gonna be <laughs> uh it's gonna be real bucket list type stuff maybe i'll go watch paris maybe i'll go watch cg43 and uh, in paris and will weaver uh one day we'd love to get over there I would also love to get to one of these games in the back end of the series as anyone listening in New Zealand or Sydney should do as well. Uh, it is building up to be a really, really interesting finish to this series. Olgan, take it easy up there. Keep uh, bringing us all the scoops for ESPN.com.au and most importantly, enjoy the basketball on Friday night. Thanks, guys. We'll catch you all next Tuesday.